Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. Health is everything. Breathing is the most natural thing in the world. We do it all the time and pay no attention to it. You know, and yet this simple act holds huge potential for enhancing our physical and mental wellness. With the passing of the years, I have become increasingly fascinated by this topic. And because of this, I'm really fortunate to have Don Noble as my close colleague. Dr. Noble has made the study of breathing much of his life's work with an especial focus on the health benefits of the types of slow and deep breathing that are used in so many contemplative techniques around the world. In today's podcast, Don and I discuss the biology of this type of meditative breathing before expanding our exploration of breathing to also include the surprising benefits of the types of rapid breathing we do naturally when we're under stress or when we're exercising. We conclude our conversation with a discussion of fascinating connections between rapid breathing and breath holding and the therapeutic potential of heat. Health is everything. Hey, Don, good to see you. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Chuck. My pleasure. We've done a podcast before, but the reason I wanted to do a follow-up podcast was because I want to talk more about breathing. And so, you know, you and I have now co-taught a class together at Emory University, and a focus of the class has been on examining more ancient ways of inducing well-being that might be useful for helping people, especially with, you know, the psychological struggles in the modern world. And it's interesting because one of the things in the class that just really struck me was how much we underestimate breathing as a potential therapeutic intervention. So talk to me a little bit about what got you going with breathing? How did this become really your specialty? Yeah, so I'll briefly mention that we did film one podcast. So if you have a chance to go back and check that out, that one focused a bit more on slow, deep breathing, uh, which is my, I guess, expertise and interest. This one, we're going to touch a bit on fast breathing as well as some other modalities. Um, And so that, that focuses more on the physiology of understanding how do we optimally breathe and how do we do it to achieve different mental states? And so that I think the most common understanding of slow, deep breathing is in the context of meditation. And that's obviously where, where I got started. Um, your work was my actually first foray into these topics. You introduced me to CBCT at Emory, the uh, cognitively based compassion training and a lot of the work that, that you started with the crew there. And so that really was my introduction to, oh, well, what are, what are the, I guess, the active ingredients here? You know, is it the compassion? Is it the mindfulness? And so I, I ended up focusing on it, like whether it's the, the breathing part that does something. And I think I really discovered that this idea that a simple sensory act of breathing and how you do it, the frequency, the depth, um, the different kind of pauses you can hold between a breath might actually be a really unique voluntary control over our autonomic nervous system. That's so simple, but often perceived as something that's just kind of in the background that people don't even really go to the effort to control. But by understanding this, we might be actually better able to to kind of optimize our mental state in the response of different situations. So talk about that. So autonomic nervous system, first off, what do you mean by that? And second off, what does breathing have to do with that? Yeah, so I think the most related conception of the autonomic nervous system for this is a a parasympathetic-sympathetic division where there are these two arms. And so if you think of slow, deep breathing, you tend to think of the relaxation response. 
I mean, this refers to this idea that there's this kind of reduced mind-body response to stressors that facilitates wellness. And so this is the parasympathetic arm of the autonomic nervous system. This is things where you have time to rest and digest. You're not being chased by predators. You're, you know, you're sitting in a kind of a restorative mode. The opposite to that, obviously, being the more sympathetic fight or flight response. So this is if you're being chased by a tiger acutely, or if you're ruminating chronically about something that's gone wrong. And I don't think that anyone would, would argue in our current uh, society that we're being overly parasympathetically stimulated. It's the opposite. We tend to be chronically sympathetically you know, stressed, and that corresponds to the sympathetic component. So those are the two arms. And so the idea is that with breathing, you can actually control or shift your autonomic nervous system in whatever direction you might need for a given task. So, so you breathe slowly, then that activates parasympathetic nervous system. You breathe more rapidly and it activates sympathetic. So, you know, one of the things that always interests me is this idea that, you know, we tend to think about the parasympathetic as a sort of beneficial thing, you know, the rest and digest. And, but it's very interesting. And long ago, I had this interest that there must be therapeutic uses of the sympathetic nervous system also. Um, and so I, one of the things, you know, there really was this sense, of course, back in the 80s, that meditation was always about relaxation. And we now know that's not true, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's one concept there that I think is underappreciated and in tremendous need of study. Meditation introduced into the West was you know, relatively recent compared to the, the history of these techniques and their origins. And so I think still, if you ask someone, why are you going to you know, control your breathing? Generally, the idea is that you're going to take a slow and deep breath and you're going to do it to relax yourself. So I think a really unexplored idea is how our evolution informs this understanding that may not always be optimal to breathe slowly and deeply. That even though we are chronically stressed now as a culture, there were times when it definitely helped to, to ramp up that sympathetic activity. And that maybe there are specific ways to breathe that do that, that are situationally optimal for example, in athletic performance or in different tasks. But you're absolutely right that the general conception of breathing, and this, this is true as a net effect, generally you are going to be more relaxed if you breathe slowly and deeply for any amount of time. For instance, I think about 20 to 30 minutes is typically personally when I start to feel something, even if I don't notice it cognitively. Um, but there's a lot going on within that cycle that I think can be leveraged uh, to improve our, our mental state. Do you know of a study where anybody's actually just do the slow breathing for 20, 30 minutes and not pay any attention to the meditation, but just the breathing itself? Has anybody ever looked at that? Yes. So the most recent context for that has been breathing with attention or without attention to the breath or volitional change um, or not volitionally changing the breath and then seeing what that does uh, in terms of cortical activity. And so there are even experiments where they have stimulated the olfactory epithelium, the tissue in your, in your nose at a certain frequency, mimicking a slow and deep breath and done that repeatedly and shown that that alone can actually stimulate some of this entrainment of uh, subcortical and cortical regions to the breath. And, and when you say entrainment, you mean that you look at the blood flow, say on an fMRI machine and it tracks with the breathing, right? It goes up, it goes down. Is that, or, or what's the entrainment? Yeah. And thank you for, I, I do tend to speak with a lot of jargon there. So thank you for making it more uh, accessible. So entrainment, usually what that means is either things like EEG, brain activity, or fMRI, neuroimaging, so blood flow related activity to different brain regions. And that's typically how, at least in a human, you'd be able to get at activity. 
But but so there's there's an amazing thing you're saying here. And let me say it back to you. You know, we breathe constantly, you know, without thinking about it. And every time you breathe, your brain activity changes along with the breath, that your brain's functioning differently when you breathe in than when you breathe out to some degree. Yeah. I think that's the part that just recently has become a hot topic. People are starting to publish and review that more and more. But, you know, people study that in the context of kind of, I guess, what is understood from the vantage point of earlier research as being therapeutic, which is typically slow and deep breathing. But there haven't really been studies to isolate what forms of breathing may be optimal for different types of states. I think that could be an unexplored area of interest. Uh, But yes, there's a lot of good research coming out about either spontaneous breathing and how that entrains neural activity in different brain regions, and also slow and deep breathing, where they say, if we either have a human subject voluntarily breathe at a slower breath, or we go and we actually stimulate their nose so they have no choice, does that do the same thing? And it seems like it does. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So we breathe in, inhale, we breathe out, we exhale. Your heart rate goes up when you breathe in, right? Your heart rate goes down when you breathe out. And yeah. so if you want to use breathing in, in that very straightforward way to sort of calm the body, which then signals back up to the brain, you breathe in and then you have a sort of longer exhale and you exhale through your nose, right? Because when you, I've read when you breathe through your nose, that also drives parasympathetic tone. Have you heard that? That that's also uh, another way that you can increase that sort of relaxation signal? Yeah, that seems to be a general consensus. One thing that gets really interesting when you start talking about the nose is that there's been the suggestion with things like alternate nostril breathing and yoga that each nostril corresponds to an arm of the the autonomic nervous system. So if you inhale through the right nostril, you actually are increasing your sympathetic activity and your left nostril, you are parasympathetic. In my understanding, there's not an actual consensus on that yet. But what does seem to be true is that there is actually a real nasal arousal cycle. So if you, for instance, cover one side of your nose at, you know, 4 p.m. at 8 p.m., the other side of your nose is going to get airflow and they'll alternate in terms of congestion. And we don't understand why that is, but there's this idea that you could actually use your breathing to kind of control those rhythms as well. And so I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that uh, nasal breathing does seem to be a common factor across these techniques. And it seems like nasal inhalation is more commonly agreed to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people will say it doesn't really matter if you exhale through your nose or your mouth, but I'm oh, aware that I'm aware of some of these tuma practices we're going to talk about, for instance, that, uh, you know, forceful exhalation through the nose, I believe mm-hmm. that they emphasize that. Is that correct to your understanding that? Yeah, I think so. It's been a while, but I think, I think that's right. Right. And of course, it makes sense, you know, when you're under physical stress and you need more oxygen, you start breathing through your mouth because you can't get enough air in through your nose, right? The air has a lot, the nose is smaller, it has more resistance, right? Has anybody ever looked to see whether psychological stress makes people breathe through their mouth as opposed to their nose? That's a really good question. I'm not aware of that. You know, our evolutionary basis of uh, how we became human in different ways suggests that that there was this nose breathing inclination. So uh, that but that mouth breathing is obligatory for exercise. So that if you are running, for instance, it's actually essential that you breathe through your mouth. It is almost that we have no choice about that. And so that brings up the interesting possibility that more restorative states is optimal to breathe through your nose, but it's a little bit the opposite. If you're doing something that requires activity, maybe it's optimal to breathe through your mouth. It could be the case that there's actually optimal ways to breathe depending on the state you're trying to achieve. And that it's not always optimal to breathe through your nose. My understanding that hasn't been explored in any rigorous way. 
so that I think it remains to be said, you know, whether it might be better to breathe through your mouth sometimes. Well, so, I mean, the breathing through the mouth brings to this. So there's a guy named Wim Hof, a Dutch man who suffered a terrible catastrophic loss. His wife committed suicide when he was a young man and he was desperately depressed. And he was looking at an ice cold canal one day and jumped in and he's now known as the ice man that he considers cold exposure to be this sort of therapeutic thing for human beings, but it's also linked to breathing. And so, you know, Wim Hof now, you know, has his method. But one of the interesting things about that method is that the breathing involved and the breathing that he does to help people get ready to tolerate the cold is not the slow nose breathing. It is in fact, very fast mouth breathing. And, and, you know, you're definitely hyperventilating, right? And when you, when you hyperventilate, you, you blow off, you get rid of carbon dioxide and it's not the lack of oxygen that makes you feel like you got to breathe. It's really interesting, right? It's the buildup of carbon dioxide. So you trick your brain into thinking that you're not, you know, uh, basically suffocating, right? And when you do that, then you can hold your breath for these crazy periods of time, you know, and, and, um, and that's just simple, you know, breathing physiology. But it is an interesting example. We're talking about, you know, fast breathing now and mouth breathing and this question of whether or not if they're done to a certain degree might be a different way of achieving therapeutic ends. So I'm somebody that feels more relaxed the times we've done the Wim Hof breathing. When that's over, I actually get this sort of compensatory relaxation. And so that's an interesting thing. It suggests that, you know, in addition to the, the slow, deep breathing, kind of nose breathing, that there may be therapeutic benefits from, from sort of its opposite in some ways. I, so I know that you make use in your own life and in your research of heat for hyperthermia. Would you say that your relaxation response after the practice is similar to how you'd feel after stepping out of a, a steam shower or a, you know, a sauna? Yes. So basically... Uh, it, it's very similar, right? And I assume when you do this sort of Wim Hof breathing, you must be signaling vagal withdrawal, your heart rate must go up. So yeah, it definitely is a, a stressor induction. But there's probably a reason why you ask about temperature too, right? Yeah, so there's, well, a number of different studies, but the one that we focused on was done on, on these monks in Eastern Tibet. who so were willing to have their core and peripheral temperature monitored while they engaged in these you know, native TUMO practices. And what they found in this study was that core temperature increased uh, just by virtue of breathing and imaging. So uh, meditative visualization um, and nothing else. Similar to, to Wim Hof's idea, you know, that breathing in a certain way can actually warm you up, but they actually showed scientifically that this was true. And that furthermore, this corresponded both to the breathing practice. So that's the so-called somatic component um, but also to what they called the neurocognitive component, which was the meditative visualization. Um, and what they found was that just breathing without any meditative visualization of flame or fire increased core temperature, but then the meditative component, adding visualization to that further increased their core body temperature. And I think that's pretty profound because, you know, most people will not say that you can increase your, your body temperature just by sitting in place and, uh, and doing something that seems that simple. One of the fascinating things in that study too, was that their brain was increasing their body temperature, which is pretty fascinating because we don't tend to think about either, you know, your body temperature or your breathing necessarily that way. Right. And can we consider these, these, these very sort of primitive evolved body processes? Can we use them to drive the brain into certain states? Right. So it's pretty interesting, isn't it? That these folks 
have hit upon not the relaxation response necessarily, but this sort of, you know, you working with the, you know, fight or flight response, basically. Yeah. And I think you mentioned Wim Hof too. My, I, I know there, there are study or studies where he's actually uh, suppressed the response to endotoxin ingestion just mm-hmm. by virtue of the, I, I believe these breathing techniques, maybe a few accessory techniques. Um, but again, suggesting that there can be adaptive value to breathing in this way that seemingly would be more stressful if you were to just to kind of frame it in the conventional way of faster breathing, hyperventilation, things that we're, we're taught to avoid. And in many cases we want to avoid, but in some cases, maybe these are actually an answer, even for instance, in certain types of performance, my understanding is that these techniques are sometimes used to kind of activate the, you know, the arousal system, for instance. Interesting, right? I mean, I remember seeing athletes and certain things kind of getting themselves ready like that, right? I guess that's sort of that idea, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I've met with a few people that work with athletes, and they're looking for ways in which to bring uh, these faster techniques, whether it may be more optimal, for instance, to, to perform a task when you're mid-inhalation, you're mid-exhalation, or you're breathing faster when you do it. And these are the things that I think are really the exciting, unexplored uh, frontiers about breathing. Can you give an example of like, what would be something that would be better at mid inhalation or exhalation or something like that? Yeah. So that again, I I always have to add the caveat that this is unexplored as far as I currently understand, but I've met with some individuals that work with uh, professional baseball players. And the idea here is that perhaps for instance, if you're in a state where you are peak inhalation, for instance, while you're receiving a pitch, Maybe you're in a more optimal task oriented state to actually do something productive. And there, there is some evidence for that. There's, for instance, this study by Dr. Zolano, who showed that in humans uh, breathing spontaneously, there's actual different performance on visual recognition tasks and memory tasks during the inhalation compared to exhalation with performance being improved on the inhalation. And so the idea here is that if you're someone that's an expert in your field, if you've seen, you know, a hundred thousand fastballs and curveballs in your life, you don't need to cognitively think you have this visual Rolodex. You've accumulated all this evidence over time. And even some of the best players who have ever played professional baseball, if you ask them what they're thinking about when they're about to receive a pitch or throw a pitch, they'll say nothing. They're in this open state. And so I think that baseball is a good example because you have really clear breaks between periods of performing, for instance, you'd want to release the exhale. If you were relating this to Tumo, you have a forced exhalation when you're taking a swing or throwing a pitch and being in this more receptive state where you just want to have this open awareness. That's really uh, a pivotal part of mindfulness techniques, for instance. Yeah. The idea here is that you don't just have to be mindful. Like, yes, you can spend a few minutes to just kind of stare at the bat first and make sure that you're in an open state of mind, but also how you're breathing can inherently put you in this mindful state. And I think that's the part that's still relatively unexplored. Interesting. Isn't that amazing? So basically a pitch would be a classic example of something that would occur within a breathing cycle. So then theoretically, you know, you can see the pitcher winding up and the the very second that the arm you, you breathe in. Yeah. Or the alternative. And again, this hasn't, I don't think ever been studied the alternative right at your breath hold on the inhalation. Maybe that's the optimal time to do it. Like we talk about doing the Wim Hof exercise. My personal experience with that exercise is that when I'm on the breath hold, I sense my heartbeat to a greater extent than I ever do. And so there's this kind of interoceptive awareness there. And who knows whether that's optimal or suboptimal to have when you're on this externally focused activity. 
But this is one of those things that I noticed that my internal sense of mindfulness is dramatically increased when I'm at that breath hold portion of the exercise. And I wonder, so I know there's one story you told to me, and I hope you don't mind me bringing it up. Um, you did a, you did a flotation tank experience. I did. And you told me that when you did this, you noticed a dramatic difference between breaths versus breathing. Would you? Would yeah. You mind? Yeah. This was a profound ex- experience, right? So these flotation tanks, you know, these are these tanks where you usually float in the dark. And, and the idea is that you float right on top of the water and you lose track of where your body ends and where the water starts. Right. And so the original idea was that this would basically do away with your body, right? You become this disembodied kind of being, but quite paradoxical. It's kind of the opposite. What you really did begin to notice, as you say, is your sort of internal interoceptive state. You begin to notice your heart rate and things like that. But what I noticed that freaked me out was that as I calmed down and as my mind got a little bit less jumpy, every time I took a breath, there was a disruption in my thought. I can't really describe it past that, but it was, it really was. It was like, if I wasn't breathing, I'd have this sort of continuity of thought. And then every time that I took a breath, I recognized that continuity was broken. And I was like, wow, every time we breathe, our thoughts are being disrupted in ways, which really interested me because, you know, one of the things that's in Wim Hof that we've talked about is breath holding. And this is a core element of the breathing practice of this Tumo meditation, right? where you basically, you kind of fill up your belly as much as you can with air. And then you do what's called a Valsalva maneuver, which is you kind of bear down like you're trying to go to the bathroom. And then you you press and you hold it. But, you know, as part of this meditation practice, the key thing is to hold your breath kind of as long as possible. I never understood that. But after my little experience in the tank, I was like, oh, you know, you hold your breath and you don't get that sort of rhythmic disruption in your concentration, right? You know. Health is everything. Thank you for listening to Health is Everything. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe or share it with a friend or rate it on Apple Podcasts. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at CSHH or at Exploring Health, that's all one word, Exploring Health on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Dr. Charles Raison, wishing you the best of health until we meet again. Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. Stroke est tout. Health is everything.